0: Welcome to Leading Light. You're about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church. We're looking this morning at um, Acts chapter 6, which was where we're at throughout our study of the book of Acts. I've entitled this message, A Resolved Rift That Led to Revival. And we've just had the passage read. The book of Acts really... Is, um, it's a summary of the fulfilling of Jesus' Great Commission. Well, it's the first leg of that. We're in Jerusalem, and we're going to Rome at the end of the book of Acts. If you imagine dropping a pebble into a bucket of water, where it lands is Jerusalem. And as those ripples radiate out, we're going through Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The end of the civilized earth, as it were, or the center of of the Roman Empire was Rome. So that's why we need to get there. There's three ways in which the Roman Empire actually aided the spread of the good news. First of all, there was a common language. So Greek tended to be spoken throughout that Roman Empire. There was a Pax Romana, which means a Roman peace. So there was relative stability and um, an an environment where you could actually discuss philosophies and talk about things about God, rather than throwing and dodging spears, which was only happening on the borders of the Roman Empire by such nations as the Scots, because you weren't going to get the Scots. The Romans would not get there. (laughs) And they didn't. (laughs) And also, the north of Germany, we've got the barbarians, the Hun, and the Celts, of course, in Scotland. That was the skirmishes. But apart from that, within the, the extended Roman Empire, there was a peace, a stability, and a security, which was good. Good ground for, for spreading the good news. And the third major factor were the Romans. The Romans were great civil engineers. They built wonderful roads. You could travel faster, you could get from town to town, you could share your message. Communications are quickened. There's a quote from a, a Christian historian, a Professor Friend, I think his name is. And he said, and this is his sense of humor, he says, God allowed the Romans to build their roads so that the feet of the evangelists could get from town to town quickly without getting too much mud on their sandals. I so, <laughs> uh, Emperor Caesar. Would have probably be very much to know why you've been allowed to build all those roads. <laughs> Although um, Rome is where we're going at the end of the book of Acts, here in chapter 6 we are very much still in Jerusalem. The church remains predominantly Jewish, and the church is basically made up of different strands of messianic Jews. Jewish believers, people who were brought up in a Jewish household, and, and some were a, a Hellenistic, a Greek-speaking culture, they would probably moved to Israel rather than being born there, but the <coughs> Hebraic Jews, the, the ones who lived and, and spoke Aramaic, as Jesus and his disciples would have, were the ones probably born, or certainly were born, in the land of Israel. So we're getting the context for this dispute and this, this passage. Um, yeah. So you've got the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, predominantly the two largest parties. There was one other strand of Jews, of course, the, the Hawaiian pineapple Jews, who, which tastes good with ice. I don't even need to squeeze that one in, which is an awful guy, but I want to keep your attention. Right. So we've got an overview, we've got a problem, we've got a solution and we've got an outcome and then what does it mean to us? Is is there something God's trying to say to us today? That's where we're going. So first of all, the problem, well if you were a widow in Israel 2,000 years ago, life was pretty grim. If your husband had passed on or been killed in conflict or just died for some reason and you were a lady, you were very dependent on either your father's help, if he was still alive, a son or sons or other relatives to keep you alive. There was no social services. And the early church was very aware of of this this group of vulnerable ladies who needed that, uh, that extra support just to survive. The Jewish widows who were being overlooked were from the Greek-speaking group of of Jewish Christians, the Hellenistic Jews. And they were being overlooked by the distribution. So at this point, you can imagine that the the bread's being distributed by the locals. So it's a bit like you worked at Vienna Bakery, and we're going round and we're looking for the local Jersey folk, and we're giving them the Bakers we're giving our bread out, and all of a sudden from a window, you hear this funny like, "Aye ho!" And boy, what on earth was that? And carry on giving out the bread to those that speak your language. So the Aramaic speakers, although Greek was the language of the Roman Empire, the locals in Israel didn't all speak Greek that well. So there could have been a misunderstanding here. They're going out, they're giving the bread to those that speak their dialect, Aramaic, and those who were shouting out in Greek. We need some bread over here. They didn't understand, so they missed those those windows who needed bread. That's a generous kind of explanation. The other one that's probably more realistic is there's possibly bias. And this is something that we're all a little vulnerable to. We look after our own first, don't we? And there's something in us that does that. You don't have to look too far back in the um, the lockdown. Remember when the food shortages? People grabbing 500 toilet rolls. I don't know I'm going to fry that with. I don't know what it had to do with COVID, really. But um, suddenly, we, we, we're grabbing stuff for our nearest and dearest that, uh, because there's a panic on. And there's something in our human nature that will buy us. We'll look after our own first, particularly from our own culture, the people we understand the most. There's nothing wrong in that, as long as we don't absolutely neglect others at that expense. About 30 years ago, I worked um, on a building site. And um, (laughs) I was a ceramic tile fixer for probably 10 years or so in the 80s, most of that decade. And one of the site agents, he was a a character. His name was Mike, or Mick. And one of his favorite sayings, you go up to say, you all right, Mick? And he goes, I'm all right, boy, he says. It's the rescue's the problem. So he's there a bit of there a londoner and um and there's something quite comical and humorous i, I find that the sort of the, the proud arrogance i'm all right so rescue's the problem he was just frustrated because the electrician or whoever hadn't come yet again on his side and now the progress was behind schedule but but we smile at that but but what he's really saying is if you see the situation my way. From my cultural perspective, in the light of my mood today, then you're okay. But if you don't, it's the rest you've got the problem. That's that's the humor in it. Well, thankfully, in our passage, the Hebraic Jews, the, um, the disciples, the apostles, they had the wisdom to realize that they needed to see This situation from the Hellenistic Jews' standpoint, they needed to put themselves in the the Greek-speaking Jews' shoes, as to say, and to empathize with this issue. Thankfully, they did. So let's have a look at the solution. The solution's got four steps. The first step is that, and one of the highlights of this passage, if, if you if you look at it, is that the two groups within the church had a dispute, but they came together as one group to discuss openly their differences. When we well, look throughout church history, this often hasn't happened. We have fifty thousand—that's five zero thousand—Christian denominations presently on planet Earth. That's a lot, isn't it? And, and most of those, not all, most of them have gone their own way through a dispute with brothers and sisters, and they decide to do it their own way and off they go. God uses that, he works through our weakness. But, um, but it's just, this, what's wonderful about this passage is actually that didn't happen. In fact, rather than the disunity bringing divergence, the resolved conflict brought a greater unity something we need to embrace. Step two of their solution. The leaders remain very focused with urgency on their particular thing. So that the, the apostles knew they were called to preach, to teach, to pray, get out and show, share the word in Jerusalem. Jesus has only recently died and rose from the dead. This is the golden moment and of course there was many. We started the very first line in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, so there's this revival going on in Jerusalem, like it's never seen, in the wake of Jesus' death and resurrection. But they remained focused, very focused on on their part. Distraction is one of the enemy's greatest tools. For all of us, we need to be on our God. He will. Use a TV program, a wrong person at a wrong time, a traffic light that doesn't change. You will use anything to just distract you and me from what we are meant to be doing this very day in service of him. And for some sports fans, I have to confess being a Stoke City fan, distraction can actually work in sports. One of our favorite ploys about seven, eight years ago was we had a man called Rory DeLap. He could throw a ball 50 metres. It was as good as a corner. And we also had the famous Peter Crouch up front, six foot seven. Well, so what would happen is when we got a throw-in, Peter Crouch is there, all the big defenders crowd around him. Rory de Lapp lobs it onto little Ricardo Fuller's head, bang, it's in the net. You can't be offside with a throw-in. And, and we, this worked for some time until match of the Day pointed it out, and then every defense marked everybody who stoked him. But the distraction was Peter Crown. Distraction is something that, that can work for good in sports, but it's one of the devil's tools to keep all of us from doing what we should do. The apostles were tuned in. They knew this dispute needed resolving, but they knew their role was to continue with their specific thing. They had confidence in what their role was. The third point in in the the solution is that the disciples enabled and trusted the Greek speakers to sort it out amongst themselves, but they did it with accountability. They said, well, you choose these seven new men who will speak Greek so we can get the problem sorted, so the winners get the problem. But you need to look, there was accountability, you need to look for these qualities. They need to be men full of the spirit. They need to be filled with wisdom, and they need to have a good reputation, a heart prepared to serve. They also need to speak Greek, all the names are Greek names actually on that list. So it all fits in. And the final step to the solution was that um, once they'd Selected these seven. The two groups came back together, and the 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 Greek-speaking group. This is the seven guys, and the the local, the 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 apostles looked at them and they thought, fantastic. These are spirit-filled men. These are full of wisdom, and even the flies listening. (laughs) And both sides were really happy. They were really pleased with the selection. There was a peace in the spirit. There was a unity within the hearts of both groups that this was the solution. Then we get the commissioning, the laying on of hands. And this was a way of acknowledging publicly, yet before God, that a person or a group of people are set apart for special service. It's the ultimate in reconciliation when the apostles of the, of the Hebraic Jews, they lay hands, they embrace, they approve, and they bless these seven Greek-speaking Jews and pray them out as true brothers to deliver that bread. It's a beautiful moment, and it's very powerful, and it's a model for any conflict within church. I just got a picture when I was thinking of this of a Holy hug. We haven't been able to hug each other, have we, for a long time. And come, the, the day will come when it's no longer one meter and all the rest of it. And, uh, and we will. But when, when we actually walk to embrace someone with a hug, there's an approval in the approach, isn't there? And then there's an opening of the arms. And there's a, a closeness in the embrace. There's a, a unity in contact. And then a blessing in touch. And then that person, both people, leave feeling they've been blessed and uplifted in that moment. It's a similar process when we lay on our hands. So, the outcome before we look at what it's saying for us. Well, the outcome is very positive. The widows from both groups are now receiving their bread. The church avoided a split and actually, in fact, a greater unity within. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. It continued to the disciples were not distracted and everybody got fed. This is good stuff. What's quite interesting in the last little bit is that a large number of Jewish priests or he says a large number of priests became obedient to faith in Jesus. This is quite remarkable because these would have been those serving in the temple that still stood. At this point there's still a temple in Jerusalem. There is still a sacrificial system going on, although Jesus is Fulfilled it through his death and resurrection, and there are still priests working there. But I just wondered um, when I was thinking about this, the, these people, why it's quite remarkable, is these people have a lot, they have the most to lose in some respects becoming followers of Jesus. They've got their position, their status, they were quite powerful, they were influential, they're overseeing all the stuff in the, the temple, where everybody wanted to flock the center of attention. So why Jesus? And I just wondered whether on that greatest day in history. When Jesus is hanging on that cross and it is finished, and then we get an earthquake eclipse, the sky darkens, and the curtain tears, doesn't it? The the veil is torn between the Holy of Holies in the temple. So then these priests wouldn't have seen Jesus dying on the cross in agony. They were perhaps on duty. And as that curtain tore and all these things go, whoa, what's going on here? and now the apostles are explaining and teaching in the temple courts. Jesus has fulfilled this sacrificial system. You no longer need to do it. The once for all Passover sacrificial lamb is, is bled into the cross. It's finished. It really is finished. I just wonder if that was why a lot of these Jewish priests, suddenly it's explained simply and a revival there. They're all part of the early church in Jerusalem so a food for thought there but as we conclude what what are the main points for us this morning first conflict within church will happen (laughs) there's nothing new there is there it will happen it will happen in house groups in church plants in big churches it will happen even in married couples of christians conflict happens most of the new testament letters are written to address disputes and imbalances of Christians going a bit too far one way and the other way and trying to pull it back. But it's something we should not be afraid of. You see, in our passage today, the conflict was dealt with swiftly, not left to simmer, sensitively, both parties were listened to, and supportively. When the resolution came, both there was an agreement within both parties, and, and the great joy in releasing the, the solution it, was it actually brought a greater unity and we should not fear conflict at all we need to get our differences out in the air and be honest and real with each other and come together and and, and look at this as a model and in fact i i think it's very true that the people you fall out with actually if you remain and working with them. They become sometimes your closest friends because at least they were honest, at least they were real, and we were real. We disagreed passionately on this but we respect each other enormously and in fact it congeals and glues us together in a much stronger bond. So conflict isn't a bad thing if it's dealt with the Holy Spirit's way to a resolution. The second um, point is that some years ago when I got saved, 30-odd years ago, we used to sing a hymn called From Heaven You Came Help Us, Babe. And there's a line in it. It says, not to be served, but to serve. And it always sort of sticks that way. Not to be served, but to serve. What a challenge that is. <laughs> we all like to be served and spoils a little bit, don't we? But the, but the heart of, the, of our gospel is to serve. And often, some of us, many of us, have been on retreats and we're trying to say, what's my calling? What, what's my bit to serve? What, what's my role in the body? I've been on many retreats. And you know what, I think God is saying, what needs doing? Yeah. What needs doing here where you are? What needs doing? <clears throat> Most of us are not called to be missionaries in Africa. I was convinced I was for five years. Kept going on a retreat and it never happened and I wasn't. But uh, when you first come in Christian, a lot of people get that sort of missionary thing or whatever. But what is my calling? What needs doing? You see, in our our passage today, the the almost trivial jobs, the the humility of distributing bread, being a bread man, for the first two on that list, Stephen and Philip, we read of incredible Incredible progression rather rapidly. Mm -hmm. Yes, they've humbled their hearts. They're going to give bread to the the homeless, the poor, those impoverished. And within months, years possibly, they're preaching, they're teaching, they're both miracle workers. Stephen, of course, becomes the first Christian martyr. But Philip goes on as an incredible um, channel of, of revival. Wherever he went, particularly in Samaria, we'll find it later on in the book. But there's a progressive revelation of service. And I want us to get this this morning, that, that when God sees our heart, and we never despise the days of small things, he sees a heart that's prepared to give our bread, to bring the tea and coffee, to do the overhead, whatever, he sees that heart. And then he starts to fuel that flame. And before we know it, the, the, the bread donor is becoming the preacher, the miracle worker. It's because the heart of, of the servant was right in Christ. The final part thing to take from that this morning, I think as, as each of us, I would like to take away a new confidence in who we are the apostles never looked down one bit on those who were distributing the bread it was equally important it was just different but they were secure in their job of preaching teaching evangelizing but it was equally important they needed to get it resolved in in our family our family of believers jesus loves authentic he loves every single one of us from a unique character that he breathed into our mother's wombs. Every one of us is different. Sometimes we don't like ourselves. Sometimes the world doesn't approve of us because they think we're a bit boring or whatever. That doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus loves you for the authentic person you are. And every role is precious. There's an equal validity to everything that people do in service. There's no superiority from preaching to doing the bread or washing the cups after coffee. There's an equality that is very important. When we look at a Swiss clock, and this is our closing picture, they're beautifully made. The detail is amazing. But the only pieces we see moving is the hour hand, the minute hand, and the second hand. And yet behind that facade, behind that image of the front, There are many, many, many moving pieces. Little cogs, springs, coils. Some are made of precious metal. Some are made of not so precious metal. Some are different shapes, different sizes. And yet, if any one of those moving parts doesn't move, it doesn't tell the time. Jesus' final prayer for his disciples in John 17 was that He he just pleaded that we would be one so that the world would know that the Father had sent the Son. And as the clock works, as the facade of that time is correct, the world will know that Jesus had come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am. Um, I thank you for the privilege to be able to serve this morning in this way. I thank you for every one of us this morning, whether we're visiting, regular, attenders. I thank you for our uniqueness. I thank you you love us all equally. And I pray we leave this room today and uh, where perhaps we've been looking for our big calling, that we can just look. A little more simply of what needs doing to start the process. And in every one of us, you will enormously um, reveal a progression in our service and build your kingdom here in Jersey for your name's sake, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com for more resources and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please consider supporting this ministry by making a donation on the giving page at leadinglightsnetwork.com or lighthousejersey.com.